Hello, listeners. This is Hillary Trudell, and you're listening to the Yarn Podcast. Thanks for joining us. At The Yarn, we use the power of story to break down barriers and build community through storytelling. We currently operate out of Little Rock, Arkansas, and all the stories you are about to hear were performed live at the New Deal Salon in the South Main neighborhood of Little Rock. Our shows are theme-based and center on topics that come straight from our community. Tonight's storytellers will talk about their lived experiences with incarceration and the criminal justice system. This show was produced in collaboration with Decarcerate, a grassroots community group dedicated to uniting communities against mass incarceration in Arkansas. This will be the first of a two-part series. Let's dive in. Our first storyteller is Hakeem Malik, who speaks about his 24-year-long journey within the crime and punishment system in Arkansas. Here's Hakeem from the Yarn Stage. Um, my name is Hakeem Malik. I'm 46 years old. I was born here in the city of Little Rock in a no longer existing uh, poverty-stricken East End community. I'm the last of seven children. My older brother's here tonight. Um, I'm gonna get right off into this. Um, I committed my first crime at the age of five without even knowing it. I stole my sister's payroll check and took it to the corner store and tried to buy candy with it. Um, that turned into me stealing coins out of my grandmother's crown royal bag that she kept on the closet shelf. Uh, once I made it to junior high school, I started to steal candy and magazines and cigarettes, all the things that would sell, you know. Um, at the age of 11, I started smoking cigarettes. Age of 13, I first experienced marijuana. At the age of 15, I first tooted powder cocaine and smoked crack. I was an honor roll student. In the ninth grade, I was on the all-A honor roll. I was in the Future Business Leaders of America, Future Homemakers of America. I was a football star. I was in the Boys Choir, the Science Club. Two years later, I flunked the 11th grade, you know. Um, a year after that, I was 17 years old in the Pulaski County Jail with 44 felonies pending. Um, due to the fact that I had a good you know, standing in school, a lot of people came and spoke up. I was blessed. I got 20 years for those 44 felonies. Um, I entered the Tucker unit at the age of 17 in 1989. At that time, prison was not like it is now. You know, um, violence was an everyday activity. Um, gangs in 1989, gangs actually hit Little Rock in 1987. 1989, they were at their apex. The beefs we had on the streets, we didn't leave on the streets. Everyone under the age of 21 at that time was sent to the same prison. The ones who had disciplinary problems like I did, there was a hundred of us stacked up in one barracks. So, you know, um, I became institutionalized. I lost all sense of the free world. You know, you put a hundred 17, 18, 19 year olds in the barracks and you got beef from the streets, beef in prison a monster was born. Um, five years after that, at the age of 22, I came to the streets and lasted 83 days and I was in the back of a police car again. I went back to prison and did my parole violation, got out and I was out 93 days and I was in the Pulaski County Courthouse. Uh, in the last 29 years, 
I've spent 24 years of my life behind bars, almost 18 years of that in solitary confinement. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that this change was easy, but um, there was three things that was real inspirational in me finally deciding to make a change. The first one was a magazine article I read, and I'm going to be real quick with this. There's 323 million people in America, but only 3 million people on parole, probation, and incarcerated. So when I saw that there was 323 million people in America and only 3 million people in my situation, that made me a, small, uh, made me a part of a real small group of people, and that didn't sit well. The next and most inspirational thing was I stabbed a guy in prison and ended up at the Varner Supermax on the 18-month program in solitary confinement. The last three months, they allow you to come out the cell and work your way back into population. I was assigned to death row. Um, there's three guys on death row right now that I grew up with, Marcel Williams, Billy Thresson, and Terry Nuna. My best friend as a child was executed for three counts of capital murder on July the 10th of uh, 2003, Riley Dover Noel. But in going into that death row chamber and working around those guys at three months, I heard the same thing over and over. Man, if I had another chance, I promise you I wouldn't have did what I did. When you get out of here, make sure you do something different. The third thing is a dear friend of mine sitting back there that I continued to communicate with while I was in prison that continued to let me know, man, there is hope. You know what I'm saying? KB, you too shy for this, bro. It's a different way. So when I left prison this time in August, uh, well, I've been out five months now. I've accomplished more in five months than I have the first seven times I was on parole. Uh, I've obtained gainful employment with the city of Little Rock. I've um, utilized the resources of all the reentry programs. You know, I've connected with people. That's why I'm standing up here now. Um, I've gotten me a used car, you know, health insurance. I did things now that I have never did before in my life. And uh, I'm not gonna say it's been easy this five months, and I know the rest of the trip ain't gonna be easy, but an old dear friend of mine who's dead and gone now by the name of Mr. A. Beard, he was a well-known uh, rehabilitation center uh, operator here. He always had a saying, if nothing changes, or nothing changes. So I knew something finally had to change. But today I'm working the AA 12-step program. I'm clean and sober by the grace of God today. If anybody doesn't believe in God, no disrespect. But uh, today I have hope. You know, Today I know there is a different way. And I'm going to continue to make strides in the right direction. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Jennifer Haran. Jennifer talks about her career as a public defender in Arkansas. Here's Jennifer from the Yarn Stage. I want to tell you all about three of the many, many clients that I have represented over time as a public defender. The first is Omar. Omar was a 20-year-old from Forest City, Arkansas, charged in a big drug conspiracy case. 
and he was looking at a lot of time because in federal court, there's no parole and you do almost all of the time that you're given. Plus, the sentences are far harsher in federal court than they are in state court. But Omar was so charismatic and he had such a good personality. He had been like Hakeem, a, a star football player when he was in high school. But he dropped out of high school in order to help take care of his ailing grandmother who had raised him from a baby. And over the time that I represented Omar, I came to like him a lot. And as we were getting ready to go to his sentencing hearing, I turned to him almost in frustration and I said, Omar, what in the world ever possessed you to get involved in a drug conspiracy that was gonna send you to prison for such a long time? And here's what he told me. He was working at a fast food restaurant making less than $5 an hour when one day he heard about a man from Chicago who was in town in Forest City and was offering folks a lot of money for not much work. So Omar checked it out, and sure enough, the guy from Chicago offered him $1,000 a week in cash to carry a paper bag from Forest City to Truman. Now, the bag didn't have drugs in it because Omar wasn't a drug user and he wouldn't have anything to do with drugs, but it was full of money and it was therefore a criminal offense. Well, when Omar told me his story, and he told me how he had used that $1,000 a week to get much needed medical attention for his ailing grandmother who surely would have died if he hadn't been able to help with the treatment for her severe diabetes, I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was, if I had been in the same situation, I might very well have done the same thing. And I've always considered myself to be a law-abiding citizen, but you know, you never can tell. Now the second person I'd like to talk about is Stephanie. Stephanie was a beautiful 30-year-old single mother with three lovely children who lived in Eudora, Arkansas, which is way down south if you haven't been there. Well, Stephanie also had a raging drug addiction and she knew that she could not spend 100% of her time trying to get clean and sober while also spending 100% of her time being a good mother. So she decided to send her children to live with her sister in Chicago, and she and her sister agreed that the sister would legally adopt the children so that she could enroll them in school and get them medical attention if there was any type of an emergency situation, and otherwise exercise the rights and the protections of a parent. But it was always understood that whenever the children were not in school, they would be back here in Arkansas with their mother, and that's the way it went. Well, Stephanie, over time, was able to get clean and sober and maintain her sobriety. She also got a good job and prepared a home for herself and her children. But she decided to let those kids stay in Chicago because the educational opportunities there were better than they were in Eudora, Arkansas. So for a few years, they followed the same routine. The children would be here in Arkansas with their mother whenever they were out of school, and during the school year, they would be with their aunt. Well, 
One summer, Stephanie noticed as it got closer to time for the children to go back to Chicago, that there seemed to be some tension in the atmosphere. So she asked her children what was going on. And they told her that the aunt's new boyfriend would whip them with the buckle end of a belt whenever the boyfriend thought that they had done something wrong. Well, Stephanie immediately got on the phone to her sister and said, hey, what's going on? And the sister said, yes, he makes the disciplinary decisions and I don't have any plans of breaking up with him anytime soon. So Stephanie didn't send her kids back to Chicago. She enrolled them in school in Eudora and they went on with their lives. Well, unbeknownst to her, the sister, the aunt, had reported those children as being kidnapped. And the next thing Stephanie knew, she was facing federal charges for kidnapping, and I got appointed to represent her. And at the same time, I was appalled that she was facing such charges, but I was also really excited because I finally had a case that I knew I could win in court because no Arkansas jury was going to send a mother to prison for protecting her children. So, man, I was in trial mode. So I'm going forward. I'm getting ready to go to court, which is unusual because about 95% of our cases conclude with a guilty plea because our clients almost always confess as soon as they're confronted with law enforcement, which is a whole other story I'll have to tell a different time. But anyway... Ten days before the court date, I filed my jury instructions with the court because that's when they were due. Well, I immediately got a call from the U.S. attorney saying, hey, are you really going to take this case to trial? And I said, absolutely. And she asked me, well, what is your defense? And I told her what the situation was. And no one else had told her what had happened to those children. And she, to her credit, dismissed the charges, and Stephanie was reunited with her children, so there was a good outcome there. Now, the last client that I would like to talk about is Odysseus, who is aptly named because his story is a journey of sorts. Now, Odysseus was also from over in the Delta in East Arkansas, and he was severely mentally challenged to the point that he had to have a legal guardian, who was his sister, his older sister. And one day the sister asked Odysseus to go down to the corner market and get a loaf of bread. Well, on the way there, and Odysseus always followed the railroad tracks to go to the store, on the way there he saw the barrel of a gun sticking out of a plastic bag. So he reached down and got it, and he ran right straight home to his sister and said, hey, look what I found. This might be something that we could sell for money so we could get groceries. And the sister said, great idea. So Odysseus cleans up the gun, takes it to the pawn shop. He fills out the paperwork, including his real name, his real address, and he disclosed the fact that he had a previous felony conviction because Odysseus had been arrested in a house with several other young men from the Delta where there was a large um, amount of marijuana. So he had a felony offense and he checked the box, yes, on the paperwork that was required. Well, when that paperwork wound its way to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, they came and got Odysseus and charged him with being a felon in possession of a firearm. 
Well, that particular charge in federal court is almost a strict liability crime, and, which means there's hardly any defense. And certainly, I couldn't say that he hadn't been in possession of the firearm because he took it to the pawn shop and pawned it for $55, with which he and his sister bought groceries. Well, when we went in front of the judge, I put all of these facts in front of the court because to me, those were very extenuating circumstances. And because of Odysseus's mental capacity, he absolutely would have been terribly victimized in prison. And the judge herself saw that it would not benefit society to send that young man to prison. So she did something that I had never seen her done in any of my other classes, and that was, or cases, that was, I'm very nervous, I swear I'd rather be talking to a jury than up here tonight. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just, I'm not, I make my living talking to juries, but not standing up in front of people with like lights and stuff. So anyway, the judge in her wisdom departed downward and gave my client a probationary sentence so he didn't have to go to prison. And I'm not proud of this fact, but I'm going to disclose it to you all because I think it's important. I used to think that people who were charged with crimes or who committed crimes were not the sort of folks that I wanted to really be around or have anything to do with. And what my clients have taught me is that I could not have been more wrong. Because the truth is, anybody can get caught up in the criminal justice system or have a loved one who's caught up in the criminal justice system. As a matter of fact, and I have not said these words outside my family, at this very moment, I have a beloved nephew who is facing federal charges in East Tennessee, and he is for sure going to prison for a very long time. So if any of you have the misconception that I once had, I'm going to ask you to just take a minute to think about Omar or Stephanie or Odysseus or my beloved nephew. Thank you for your attention. It's been a pleasure. Our next storyteller is Karen Burks. Karen Burks talks about her experience and struggle trying to free her teenage son from the criminal justice system. Here's Karen from the Arn stage. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm like super nervous. <laughs> um, never been to prison, though I've come pretty close a few times. Um, not an attorney yet, that's the goal, I guess. Um, my story is of fighting every day for someone else, even when you feel like giving up. I'm a mom. 16 years ago, on my 18th birthday, I gave birth to my best friend. It was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I can honestly say he changed my life. I won't lie and say it was all rainbows and unicorns, 
but he made every moment of my life beautiful. I mean, this kid is amazing, you have no idea. Intelligent beyond his years, polite, kind-hearted, the kind of kid that always fought to defend the kid that everyone else bullied. It didn't take long before he had proved to everyone else how amazing he was. By seventh grade, he had received entry into a Duke program for some of the smartest children in the country because of testing in the top fifth percentile in the nation for mathematics. Shortly after that, he found his next goal, football. And by the third game of his first season, he had already ran 70 yards to a touchdown, discovered that he was an amazing linebacker, and started playing the entire game, both offense and defense, though he has asthma. <laughs> he began his first year of high school, and as you can imagine, my fears as a mother. He's handsome, he's articulate, he's athletic, he only plays seven classical instruments. And he can make friends with anyone. Sadly, through all my efforts to turn out a nerdy kid, he's popular. <laughs> We've always been open and honest about everything. I gave him the talk and my dad followed up, so I didn't really have any worries. Not knowing that in a few short months, our lives would forever be altered. February 2016, I received a call from a detective telling me my son was in transit from school to the police department. My heart stopped. I asked why and what had happened and was told to come to the station that they would tell me when I got there. Within minutes, my parents were meeting me to find out what was going on and why this of all kids was being arrested. After finding out the charges and that juveniles don't get released to their parents, I quickly found out that as a parent, I no longer had any rights to my 14-year-old child. The late night talks about nothing, family vacations, football games, and Sunday dinners, just going in his room at night to look at him sleeping. We're all gone, blink of an eye. After a short three-day court process where the estate's attorney was found to have facilitated the destruction of evidence, the only witnesses changed stories even before the very court. The forensic evidence supported his innocence. Somehow a retired special judge brought in by the state through nodding off still found him guilty. He was sentenced to nine to 12 months at DYS Rite of Passage, a juvenile prison under the guise of a treatment facility. Now, 19 months later, my little boy is becoming a young man. Since his confinement at DYS, I have fought so many human rights violations. At times, I thought I was gonna lose my mind, arguing laws that I was just learning myself with the heads of the facility. In those first months, my son was held in solitary confinement for two and a half weeks because he refused to cut his hair due to his religious beliefs. A room without a bathroom or a bed, only a mat and your own thoughts. Thoughts that break my heart, knowing all of this, knowing how stories like Khalif Browder's end. But somehow my son remains strong and stands up for what he believes and what's right. But more than that, no matter what is thrown at him, he finds his peace amid all the chaos. He's witnessed physical abuses, sexual perversions, and so much more. All the grievances and complaints filed are met with only, there are a lot of things that will, he'll see that will make him uncomfortable. All I can think is who hired you people to care for children? I still can't believe some of the things he tells me at our weekly visitations. It's been almost two years and our journey is finally coming to an end, but only after going back to court to prove the policy of admittance before release is unconstitutional. You see, my son could have gone home a year ago, but he maintains his innocence, and because of that could not be released, even though he's finished with their entire program. I think we can all see how admitting guilt if you're innocent could pose a serious issue with their policy, but luckily a judge agreed that it was wrong, 
So my best friend will be home in a little over 30 days, but a lot has changed. The once bright white Christmas tree that was left up waiting for his return is now dingy and tan. The presents are all piled up, still waiting for him to unwrap. But his little brother isn't the same little eight-year-old boy that never left his side. And I've come to the sad resolve that two years were stolen from me. And now I only have two left with him before he's off to college. And though we have helped change eight policies at rite of passage to help ensure no other child has to go through the dehumanizing treatment my son has dealt with, we will never get back all the time and chances for memories. But I know I'll get through this. There's no giving up when you're a mom. Thank you. Our final storyteller in the first part of our series on incarceration is Megan McBay. Megan talks about her own struggle to free herself from the cycle of incarceration. Here's Megan from the Yarn Stage. I'm trying to get myself together after. <laughs> Hi. My, uh, my ADC number is 754140. And I've been in prison six times. Um, twice in Texas, four in Arkansas. And um, I'll just give you a little background. Um, I was adopted at birth. The lady that adopted me had diabetes and she couldn't have children of her own, so I grew up as an only child. And due to my mother's diabetes, she was very sick. She was in and out of hospitals. and. Um, because of that, I was kind of shuffled back and forth between two sets of grandparents and sometimes my dad. Um, early on in my teenage years, my, um, my mother received a kidney transplant and her health greatly improved. And because of that, she was much more, she became much more involved in my life and um, she was also very controlling. So around 13 or 14, I started rebelling, skipping school, um, drinking, smoking marijuana, taking pills, um, running away from home, just anything that you can imagine that you wouldn't want your kids to do, I did it. And um, I started experimenting with drugs um, at a young age, and it continued on into my adult life. I was arrested for the very first time when I was 17, and I was taken to an adult jail. And at the age of 21, I caught my first felony and was sent to prison um, in Texas um, in a rehabilitation center within their prison system. I was there a year. I was locked up exactly a year. And then when I got out, I was told that I would be able to get my daughter back, my second child. And um, when I got out, the CPS people that had taken my, my baby told, told me that I wouldn't be able to get my daughter back because the foster family had had her too long. As a result of that, um, I felt like, what am I even trying for if I can't get my daughter back? So I went back to using really quickly, quickly and was, um, was back in prison within a month. Um, and then I, I did another year in Texas. So when I got out the second time in Texas, um, I got out on a Tuesday and I found my mother had passed away on a Saturday. And that was, that was a really... Um, it was a really bad turning point for me 
because my mother was my rock. She was my everything. And I didn't know what I was going to do without her. So I, I started smoking crack, crack cocaine. Um, my, the father of my daughter um, had got strung out on it while I was in prison. And after my mother passed away, I just joined him. And I had done drugs for a while, you know, but nothing really hard like crack cocaine. And then I started doing meth as well. So I became really strung out. And over the next several years, I was in and out of county jail. I was in and out of prison. Um, I, got, I got in trouble in Arkansas, and that's what brought me to Little Rock. Um, I paroled out here in 2000. 10, I decided to change, uh, you know, and all these times I really wanted to change. Like it was in my heart, but I, I really lacked direction and purpose in my life. Um, I was just kind of walking around like an accident. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do or who I w was or who I wanted to be. And at that point, when I looked in the mirror, I saw written on my forehead, convicted felon, drug addict, failure. That was how I saw myself, and I, I was hopeless. And so the last time that I was arrested was in January of 2015. Um, I hadn't been out of prison six months at that point, and I absolutely wanted to die. It wasn't long after I had gotten out of prison the last time that I had relapsed, and everything just spiraled out of control, just got worse and worse and worse. And um, I really, I was at my rock bottom. I wanted to die, um, and I ran. When the cop pulled me over, I ran from him. And when I came to, I just decided that at that point, I was gonna change, and I had no idea how I was gonna do it. I had no idea. I just knew that I keep, kept waking up every day and putting my best foot forward and making positive changes to my life. Um, it was at that point that I, I met Miss Kim. She was coming to Pulaski County Jail, and um, later on in my prison sentence, I, um, I had heard that there was a, a new place opening called Hope Rises, and that's, I knew that's where I needed to be. Um, just something in my heart told me that that's where I needed to be. And so um, I paroled out there. Um, I had, while in my prison sentence, I just want to talk about that for a second. In my prison sentence, as soon as I got there, I, I signed up for everything that I, I thought could help me. And I ended up in SATP, um, which is the drug treatment program within the prison. And while everybody else hates getting sent there, I soaked it up with every being that was in me. I, every assignment, I put my heart into everything because I did not want to feel like I wanted to die anymore. I knew that it, if it happened again, it was not gonna. It was gonna be the end for me. So, so that's what I did. I spent that two years, just soaking up everything that they had to offer that could change my life. Then I ended up going to Hope Rises, um, and for the first time in my life, I really felt like I was somewhere that I belong. I feel like I have a family again after years of feeling completely and utterly alone in the world. <laughs> And I'm just so grateful for that. Um, I've been out now since August of 2016. I'll have three years sober in April, um, which is a miracle. I've not had that much sober time in my adult life in ever. <laughs> and so that is a complete miracle for me. Um, and I just, uh, I now I go to the prison with Kim on Thursdays. And um, 
And I look at those ladies, and the ladies that I feel like they have no hope, I just try to bring hope to them. Yes, if I can do this, you guys can. And now when I look at myself in the mirror, I don't see the things I saw before. I see mother. I've, I've reconnected with my daughter. We have a relationship now. We talk every day. I see friend, and I see just a good person. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Hilary Trudell, and this is The Yarn Podcast. The Yarn Podcast is a production of the Big Rock Switchboard Network. Big Rock is produced by Whit Berenger, and this show was edited by Omaya Jones. You can find more on The Yarn at www.theyarnstorytelling.com, and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Lastly, we'd love to hear from you. You are the community, and we want to make sure we're representing what matters to you on our stage. Send us your suggestion for upcoming shows and comments about our podcast to info at theyarnstorytelling.com. And remember, at The Yarn, we believe in the power of story. Share yours with us at theyarnstorytelling.com. Everyone's got a story. What's yours? I'm your host, Hilary Trudell, and we'll see you next time.